what will your future look like? The job you do today could be different than the jobs of tomorrow. Some see this as a challenge. At UCF, we see opportunity. A chance for you to grow your knowledge and strengthen your skills from anywhere life might take you. With in-demand degree programs and resources for your success, UCF Online can help you prepare for the future and all the possibilities that come with it. From the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning, I'm Kelvin Thompson. And I am Tom Cavanaugh. And you are listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast. Hey, Tom. Hey, Kelvin. It's, uh, it is podcast time. It's one of yeah. my favorite times. I you know can't... what else it is? Coffee time. It's, one it's of my coffee time. Times. So, yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> We get to have an interesting discussion. We mm-hmm. get to, you know, take a step back and, and think about interesting things. Uh, I get some uh, awesome free coffee, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. usually from you. And, um, and I can't do my email. So. And you I guess you could. I could, but it would, yeah, it would be a boring podcast. Nobody but wants that. Here's the thing. If, if we have been successful, Tom, uh, you will be so engaged in what we call the collegial conversation over a shared cup of coffee that you won't be tempted to get back into your email. So should uh, yeah. I see your eyes darting over to your email monitor, <laughs> I'll know it's time to get out of here. My eyes dart over to our notes to, to pull back the curtain okay. a little All bit. Right. But yes, no, I am not doing email. I never have during, a, during an actual podcast. I don't think I, I have promise. either. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a shame. <laughs> so you have invoked the coffee reference. Uh-huh. And I have sipped my first sip. Mm-hmm. Um, what is in the thermos, Kelvin? So um, in the proverbial thermos mm-hmm. and in each of our cups uh, is a single origin El Salvador, uh, called El Batallon, I guess the battalion, roasted by methodical coffee in Greenville, South Carolina. The particular coffee varietal, we've talked about coffee varietals a little bit before, that gave rise to this coffee was actually bred in El Salvador rather recently during the latter part of the 20th century, a very late 50s up until the 80s. This coffee was bred to be of high quality, but also adaptable to diverse growing conditions, which opens up access to a wider variety of farms and growing regions. And the owners of this particular farm, Mapeche Coffee, are committed to being accountable for sustainable farming practices and to serving their community through increasing opportunities for employment and whatnot. As we've noted before, single origins like this El Salvador are much more affordable than some of the over-promoted coffee locations that we won't mention right now in this okay. episode. Uh, so how is the coffee, and can you detect a connection? <laughs> uh, coffee's good, thank you. I, I'm enjoying it. Um, and as far as the connection goes, I'm, I'm struggling. Uh, I, I do know what we're talking about today mm-hmm. and, and who we are talking to. That, that helps. It does, but it doesn't. Uh, so I, I'm not sure I'm seeing it. Now, you really hit that, can you detect a connection? That's right. And um, I think that may have something to do with it, but mm-hmm, it, it, mm-hmm. that's very on the nose and it doesn't have mm-hmm. a whole lot to do with the coffee. Um, 
our, we have a guest today. And we do have a guest today. He makes a reference to sort of a framework using some alliteration with the letter A. Yes. Um, so that could be your A, but mm -hmm, uh, as mm -hmm, far as mm -hmm. the rest of it goes, uh, it just sounded like a nice coffee story to me. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm glad <laughs> you think the story was, was nice, so that's, that's good. Um, I'll hit another yes. Um, hidden in the little uh, monologue about the coffee were some A references that may show up again, like hidden Mickeys for our Disney aficionado uh, audience members. But uh, a couple other things that I tried to uh, make a connection to is making a difference for people in the community through increasing opportunity. I think that's mm. a that's a connection. Gotcha. That's okay. a theme. See that. And then um, I think also uh, I thought there was a little bit of a connection between latter 20th century mm. uh, time periods. Uh, the, the varietal was bred in the latter 20th century and the institutions and models that are referenced today are kind of late 20th century bridging into the 21st century kind of things. Okay. I see that now. Yep. So, okay. Eh, I, you know. know, I just got to, I got to let the scales fall from my eyes so I can see your references <laughs> a little bit, a little bit better. Just don't pour the coffee in your, in your, <laughs> in your eyes. And, and I don't know, just as a quick little sidebar, is bread the right word for, for I, coffee? It sounds I don't know. animal husbandry like. Cult cultivated? I mean, I, maybe that, yeah. I mean, there, there's some kind of, you know, is there plant husbandry? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Gardening? Is there wife? wife guard, I don't know. There's, there's cultivating. There's Midwifery, <laughs> animal husbandry. I, I, don't I don't know. I never understood all that. Uh, so, listeners, if you understand that, send us a note to topcast at ucf.edu. Right. We need the etymology us. of these words, please. That's, that's Desperate right. important for that's, that's, that's correct. But uh, before we totally digress, because our, before our time elapses, I should say that, Tom, you interviewed our guest today, Dr. Gregory Fowler, who is currently president of the University of Maryland Global Campus, recently, while our pandemic response is still ongoing. And President Fowler came to UMGC just recently, I think, uh, as we record this in, uh, what are we in? We're in May, uh, just a, like four months ago, I think, in January, I think he started. He came most recently from Southern New Hampshire University and previously held a variety of posts at Western Governors University, Hesser College, Penn State University, Erie, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Dr. Fowler has been the recipient, notably, of two, count them, two Fulbright Scholar Awards. Is there anything you want to say about this interview prior to cutting to it? Uh, not much, because I think there's an awful lot jam-packed into it mm -hmm. that sort of stands on its own. I've, um, I, I've had the opportunity to meet Greg a little bit, um, and we've, we've been sort of uh, social media followers of each other for a long time. And it, and it, was, it was really nice to get the opportunity to, to spend you know, 20 minutes or so uh, going a little deeper into his journey and um, you know, the way he thinks about things. I just really admire his career path and the work that he's done at all of those really innovative institutions, all three of the most recent ones, Western Governors, Southern New Hampshire, and, um, and UMGC previously UMUC. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just a big fan of, of those schools and the way they think and, and how they don't um, rest on the past, but instead sort of lean mm -hmm. into the future. And I think you'll get a sense of that when you, when you hear the interview with him. So maybe All we right. should uh, just use that as our transition. All right. Through the miracle of modern time travel technology via podcast, here is your interview with Dr. Gregory Fowler. So, Greg, thank you so much for agreeing to be on TopCast. This is a thrill. Thank you for the invitation. 
Yeah, so uh, maybe, maybe just to kind of get things started, um, um, perhaps you could kind of just describe a little bit of your career path, what led you to the presidency at University of Maryland Global Campus, and, um, and you know, maybe uh, help people kind of understand your path. Uh, and this is maybe a little bit of foreshadowing because I'll give you a little precursor. Uh, maybe before we're done, I'm gonna ask you what advice you might have for, for people who might wanna have a similar sort of career path. Sure, um, and I'll try to give a very brief version of this. My I started college um, at uh, Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. So it's an HBCU, um, a school very much committed to making sure that, of course, historically, African-Americans have not always had the same opportunities um, that others have had. And so the school has a lot of cultural pieces built into the idea of how do we support people who need uh, support in specific ways. That sort of inspired my, my life story since then. Uh, when I first left college, I came and lived here in D.C. at the time, working for the National Endowment for the Humanities. And my job at that time was as outreach specialist, where I continued that type of work. The job at that time was to help people who didn't normally get NEH grants get those grants. So I spent a lot of time on tribal reservations, dealing with um, various types of organizations, just trying to say there's a funding out there to help you get um, some of your story out there in ways that you wanted to. So um, after that, I moved over and taught for a number of years at one of the Penn State campuses up in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and then after I came back from my first Fulbright, which was in Berlin, I got really inspired by a lot of the things that Europe was trying to do. Um, Europe at the time was very much focused on how do we take these various educational systems and unify them into something that allows for some type of standardization across all the countries that were trying to participate in the EU. So when I came back, I was really caught up in this idea of how do you measure education learning in some standardized ways, um, which led right into the work that I did with Western Governors when it came down to competency-based education. Um, in 2005, when I joined the school, it was about 3,000 students um, and about 500 graduates. And over the next six years, by the time I um, left Western Governors, they were 10 times that size, so a little bit over 35,000 students, um, but still very much focused on that work of reaching out to people who were not traditionally successful in higher education modalities, still reaching out to those groups of people to say, how do we think about high academic quality at the same time as we want to come up with different types of learning experiences. And um, that followed me when I got the invitation. Um, after a year at Hesser, I joined um, SNHU um, when their um, online program was beginning to take off, Southern New Hampshire University. And I think they, some, they were somewhere around twelve to 13,000 students in their online program at the time. And over the last nine years, we've seen um, that grow um, exponentially, of course. But um, the work continued to be the same thing, affordable, accessible degrees and different types of learning experiences for students who um, education is not an absolute guarantee for. So uh, that work um, allowed me to spend some time with different organizations around the company, around the country, including of course, UMGC. So when this came up as an opportunity, I was more than excited to be uh, nominated for this position and the work that they do, um, certainly around the world, but just the different ways that they approach the idea, again, of what I call the sort of four A's, affordability, accessibility, academic quality, and finally, accountability, um, are the things that I think drive the work that we have been doing here and are gonna continue to be doing moving forward. So Greg, thank you for that, uh, that very abbreviated career summary. Um, you know, it's, there's a theme that kind of runs throughout your four A's, which I think is a really interesting framework, a, different, a very interesting lens to look at it with. But you've been, you've been spending, at least since Western Governors, a lot of time sort of looking at online learning 
and how to best serve you know that particular non-traditional population and I'm a big fan of all three of those institutions of Western governors of UMGC or UMUC even before that and of Southern New Hampshire and I wonder if you can maybe share something that you learned along the way that, that helped prepare you? Like, for example, I'll prompt you with a, with a question. Uh, I, I'm also a big fan of, of Paul LeBlanc and um, have, have followed his career as well. And I wonder if there's anything particular you picked up from him um, or from, from the leadership at Western Governors along the way that you think has helped prepare you for the presidency where you are now. Well, it's interesting because, of course, the three institutions are very different in some ways. Um, Western Governors was uh, founded in 1995 or right around that time, and it was an institution that was starting um, with the opportunity and the challenges of not having a sort of historical uh, legacy that it was trying to operate around. Um, so it was able to sort of build from the beginning and it worked with online education in a way that didn't require it to navigate some of the other things that you would have come across. Um, Southern New Hampshire University, of course, like a lot of the schools in that part of New England, started off as a business school, um, a business training school, eventually became a college. And um, by the time it decided to get into the online space, it had been around for about 80 years. Um, so it had a, a campus that you see a lot in the commercials now. Um, it had a traditional faculty, a tra traditional faculty structure, and all of the things that went along with that. And so you had to navigate a different space. So um, Paul, one of the things that he did so well was to recognize that we want to keep doing this work that we're doing over here, and yet we also want to do some work in other places. Um, uh, the BYU Pathways president, Clark Gilbert, wrote a book called Dual Transformations, and it's all about how do you keep your core operating and at the same time think about what tomorrow might hold as a leader. Um, and he says one of the ways to do that is to give them a little bit of space from each other. So the online side of Southern New Hampshire University is literally two miles down the Merrimack from the, um, the actual physical campus that people think about in the more traditional sense. Close enough to be engaging with each other, but at the same time enough space so they can think a little bit differently about things um, and learn from what they um, did with that to try to figure out what was going to come next. You, you have to give that space to breathe and at the same time value both. And I think one of the things that was very good about SNHU was appreciating what each was trying to do. One of the big mentors and former board members of SNHU was Clayton Christensen, who just recently passed away about a year ago. Um, and he talked a lot about understanding the mission and the job you're trying to do and supporting those things without getting distracted. So when we talk about leadership, being able to understand what is it that we're good at, what are we trying to accomplish, and recognizing where there may be differences in those various models was something that was very clear at SNHU, not trying to place one above the other. And also not trying to say that one has to replace the other. There was room for both of those models to operate at the same time. And certainly when College for America came along um, a couple of years later, the competency-based version of these things, for all three to say we're dealing with different students and we need to value and resource each one of those things in the way that they need to. And at the same time, not try to make any of those versions the other. I, th I think one of the big challenges for innovative leaders is to recognize that everything isn't broken. And that was one of the lessons we learned at Western Governors University um, was that there are times where you need to innovate and there are things that you really don't have to change because they're working fine as they are or there's a reason for them to operate the way they are. And leaders who want to come in and just simply wipe the slate clean often find themselves having to go back and reshore things that they otherwise should have just left in place in the first place. You know, that's interesting. And, and it's you're 
you're uh, reading my mind, because that was sort of my next question, which was um, leading from an innovation mindset, as opposed to what I think, you know, the temptation often is, is to lead from sort of a task mindset, like I got to get these things done, and I'm going to, if you're a leader, you sort of like, you know, charge a team with getting this thing done. But I think it's a little different um, orientation than uh, an innovation mindset, which I think is just as important and in some ways more important because it's sort of, it's got one eye kind of on the horizon as opposed to just what you're doing right now. And I, and I wonder if, because you've, you've mentioned this just, just in your last answer about innovation and not necessarily having to fix everything, but I wonder if you have any insights and in, in how to lead with an innovation mindset. You know, um, Bob Johansson, uh, we did a lot of work with Institute for the Future out in California during my years at SNHU, and he, he said a phrase that I think about often. He said, leaders need to provide clarity, not certainty. And understanding the distinction between them is we know what we are trying to do. We're not always necessarily sure how it's going to transpire is one of the big challenges that I think any leader has to work their way through. Um, so we want to make sure that our teams and that our vision knows where the North Star is, but recognizing that you might have to tack left or tack right as you're trying to get on this course to do those types of things. And also that some of the other people in the room are likely, if you truly have an innovative culture going on, to be smarter than you on some of the things you're trying to do. Um, a lot of this work, whether you're talking instructional design, whether you're talking content development, whether you're talking assessment, specialist learning resources, all of these things have uh, things that, it, at least at SNHU, we were working around, how do we shore up each of these areas and make sure they're as strong as they can be and that their voice is part of the conversation and we, that we give that voice space to be heard. Um, all of these are things that have to go into the process of what innovation's going to be without turning it into, I know every step along the way. Um, because the bottom line is, if we're innovating, um, there are lots of times where we have to be comfortable with failure um, and how to learn from that failure and to create the psychological safety for our teams when they're working in that space to say, we're going to learn and we're going to keep moving forward. And we're not afraid to sometimes say, we're going to step back from that. Um, some of the things that I was most impressed with were the times when the leadership at SNHU would say, yeah, we could keep going down this path, but we don't think it's going to end up where we want it to. Better to, you know, cut our losses from this, learn from what we did and move on to the next thing that we want to try to do. That, that takes a lot of courage. And it also takes leaders who are going to be willing to say, um, I don't have to always be seen as the hero. Yeah, it's something we've talked about on this podcast and I've talked about a lot with colleagues is this idea of we, we tend to hide failure. You know, you go to professional conferences and everybody's talking about these wonderful projects and all these great outcomes. And, you know, there's more to the story than that. And we could probably I'd love to have just nothing but a failure conference where we go and we all just share here are the things that just didn't work and what I learned from that. Uh, I think that this is Tom's soapbox here for a second, but I, I think that that would be really, really valuable. Well, I think that the other piece that's really valuable in that, Tom, is not just the study of the failure, but what were the things you thought along the way that made you think that was the path to take? Because in many cases, when we study those types of things, you see assumptions that other people are making that something that you're doing is right, that you can actually help them not make the same mistakes you made. You know, I have four older brothers, um, and they are much older than me. So my, ne my next oldest brother is 10 years older than I am. And my mom often said to me, Greg, if you pay close attention to your brothers, you don't have to repeat their mistakes. You're going to make your own, but you don't have to repeat theirs. Um, and I think that's the same thing that you have to think about when we're talking about higher education. If you've got several institutions that are trying to collaborate and learn, 
having one of them say, you know, we tried this thing. It didn't work. Here's what we were thinking at the time. And another one saying, we were just thinking that yesterday. Um, and learning from that could help a lot of other institutions um, move things forward. One of the things I've seen that I've been very happy with um, in the sort of space we're talking about, UMGC, SNHU, um, UCF, um, and some of the others, is the willingness to pick up the phone and talk to each other. Um, because that allows other groups to move forward. In the end, as we all know, none of us serve even 1% of the United States college population. And I say college, I don't just mean 18 to 22 years old. I mean the full population of post-secondary. None of us serve more than 1%. None of us even serve 1%. There's plenty of room in here for us to learn and to engage with each other and to give each other the space to try their missions and understand different ways to work with people if we're willing to do that. But that, that again, requires leaders who are both courageous and more committed to the mission than they are to the headline. Yeah, yeah. You, well, you mentioned Clayton Christensen and, and Paul LeBlanc. I've been fortunate enough to be in sort of small group discussions with, with each of them. And um, that's where I first heard the, the jobs to be done, you know, framework, uh, even before I read it uh, in case studies and things. Um, what do you think the job is that, that UMGC is doing for your students now? So uh, we have one of the things that really appeals to me about UMGC is that, of course, we have our historical um, work that we've been doing since 1947, certainly with the military and other things. One of the first things I did when I came here was watch this documentary called Over There, which um, was on Maryland Public Television. It was all about the faculty members who were traveling the globe to um, go teach students who were in circumstances where they couldn't sit in a classroom. So you have some of these uh, wonderful faculty members in jungles. Um, sometimes in the, sometimes in fact one of them talks about there being bomb alerts going off and they are trying to figure out how to move around um, in some of the places in the desert. Um, so I, one of the first things that became very clear to me was that um, UMGC is really focused on meeting students where they are, both literally and uh, when it comes to the work we're trying to do virtually now. So I think this is one of the big opportunities is for us to think about the different populations that we are trying to serve. So when uh, Clayton and Paul and others talk about this, they aren't saying that there is a one size fits all. They're saying that for different groups of people, they have different purposes that they're trying to serve. For a lot of our military students who are getting out of the military, um, they're looking for what their next job is going to be. For a lot of the military families who are going with their spouses overseas, they're trying to make sure they continue their education. For any number of reasons, we have to be aware of all of the different types of uh, products, and I'm going to use that word in the broadest sense here, um, that we are trying to put out there into the market space, these learning experiences that fit the various needs. Being clear about that and being clear about what needs to change about each of them and what can remain the same is an absolutely critical thing that we're trying to figure out how to do here at UMGC and make sure that we serve each of those populations well. So what do you think the biggest obstacles, I know you're not that long a tenure into the position yet, it's probably not a fair question to ask, but what, what obstacles do you see in front of you right now in sort of, you know, fulfilling that mission to serve those, those constituencies that you just described? Well, I, I would say that the, the biggest observation I'd have, I wouldn't necessarily call it an obstacle, but um, everyone wants to sort of fight the last battle or have the last accomplishment. And one of the first things I said when I joined this team here is I did not come to UMGC to try to replicate SNHU, nor did I go to SNHU to try to replicate what WGU was trying to do. Um, in each of those instances, being clear on what we are trying to accomplish, who our populations are, and the ways that, and the strengths that we have, um, that can help with that are the things that I'm trying to think about. So we have more than 170 locations around the globe. 
um, where we are doing teaching for various populations. There's wonderful opportunities with DEI work that I think is going to play out in this. There are wonderful opportunities in different types of learning experiences, some of which will be micro-credentials or cert certificates or other things. Um, so these are the big challenges that I think are in front of us. I think what we have to be able to do is uh, work with those things as we move forward in a different way. Um, than we were for the things that we saw before. So um, there was a period in the early 2000 teens um, when it made a lot of sense to try to grow exponentially with certain types of strategies. I think now those strategies will have changed. We are about to come out of a pandemic, um, a pandemic in which all of the 4,000 schools, many of which we're not even thinking about online education, have at least had some exposure to it. And you've got a whole lot of leadership out there trying to figure out what comes next. So for us, trying to make sure we, again, stay focused on what we are trying to do. Don't try to play keeping up with the Joneses. Um, try to do the work that we do well. Um, these are some of the big challenges. I think the other big one is always going to be any place you go, you've got to make sure you work on the culture. Um, and continue the culture of um, letting people try things that are new, um, celebrating their successes, but also, again, creating that space where if they don't succeed at something, they feel okay about trying to, about being able to admit that and move forward. So I, I warned you, I was going to ask you to offer some advice to maybe some people who might be a little earlier in their career, who might aspire to a college presidency. Um, what, what would you tell them? How would you encourage what what suggestions would you provide? So one of the biggest lessons, I think, and it, it sounds relatively obvious, but it's not, I think, for most leaders, is that you don't have to be good at everything. Um, and that the best leaders do two things. One, they make other leaders. Um, they, they help other people to you know, aspire and get to the level that they need to. But they also surround themselves with people who shore up those areas that they are not necessarily the strongest in. Um, I was just having this conversation yesterday with someone, uh, and, this, and what I said to her was, you don't have to worry about being the person who knows everything in the room. In fact, if you're the person who knows everything else in the room, why, would you, need, why do you need to hire anybody else? Uh, so how do we surround ourselves with people who are going to help us do those things that we don't necessarily do well? And how do we maintain our humility to recognize that we don't do those things well. So the first step's hiring, the second step is trusting them um, and allowing them the space to grow in the areas that they need to. That's a very hard thing for many leaders to do. So if you're gonna be a college president, I think, um, at least for me, I take great comfort in the fact that when I'm in a room with the people who are around me, I have faith that they know what they're doing. And that, uh, that allows me to do what I do best so that they can also do what they do best. That's great. I have so many more questions. <laughs> if we only had more time, maybe, um, I know you're a busy guy, you're a college president, um, but um, if the opportunity presents itself, I'd love to, I'd love to continue this um, at another time, because I, I, I think that there's so much more that we could, that we could talk about. Oh, absolutely. And of course, check back in with me in six months and I guarantee you I'll have learned something new. That's the yeah. nature of the game. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, on behalf of Kelvin and myself, uh, uh, we are we're really grateful you did make time out of your schedule to uh, to talk to us and to be on to be on Topcast. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you again for the invitation. Good to see you. Well, Tom, that was your interview with Greg Fowler. It was my interview. Yeah, uh, as you can see, he's a really thoughtful guy, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I can't wait to see what he does at UMGC. Yeah, if he could find time, I think he should have a podcast. 
Yeah, he should. Yeah, they had, uh, as you can probably see if you're watching this on video, um, they they had kind of an interesting setup for him, and it seemed like they had some gear and a mixer, and so he probably should. He's got a good voice. He he he's he he's got good delivery, right? I mean, and he's incredibly thoughtful. They're just, and you know, can I just say what? I told you this before we hit record, what a rich set of background experiences for a university president. I mean, everybody has their own path to get to institutional presidencies, but man, what a, what a diverse background. Yeah, rich. yeah, he was, he was destined <laughs> yeah, to no do kidding. it, uh, I think, to, or to end up where he, where he is now. But yeah, I think there's a lot we can learn uh, from, from that conversation. You know, like a couple of things jumped out to me. It was, one was this, this framework of the, of the four A's, mm-hmm. the affordability, accessibility, uh, academic quality, and accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As we were talking about earlier, that it, it is somewhat reminiscent of our Iron Triangle framework, right. Right. slightly different, but because we've talked so much about that on this podcast, and it's been a lens through which we've viewed so much um, mm-hmm. here at UCF, that uh, that resonated with me a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I, mm-hmm. I really thought that was a, a really interesting way to, to approach the work through those four yeah. A's. Yeah, uh, agreed. Although the, the accountability part's a, a, an important thing that we don't talk about as much, right? Uh, in, at least in the Iron Triangle construct. So that is a, a notable addition. Yeah. You know, t- to me, I think I, I mentioned this when we were talking before hitting record. I think um, I was really struck. I mean, it's not like this is a completely new concept, but I like the way he expressed the idea that no institution serves more than 1% of potential higher ed students in the U.S. Yeah. And so there's, you don't need to really, I mean, we sometimes see our, we talked about, I think here before, coopetition, you know, cooperating and competing. We talk about competing some, but really, you know, to what extent are institutions competing for the same sliver of a percentage point rather than trying to serve a different slice of the potential student pie? That's a, that's a, that's a head scratcher, right? You kind of go, huh? Yeah. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I think only when you're at some very elite levels are you competing. But even then, it, you know, Princeton and Harvard and Columbia are turning down an awful lot of qualified students. So there, there should be plenty of, of students for all of us. And so we ought to be uh, helping each other. Yeah, and, and even too within an institution, like, you know, he gave the SNHU. Uh, example of uh, kind of their three, at least the last time I was there anyway, kind of three distinct emphases like the campus environment, the what I think they call now also the global um, environment, and then the College for America CBE program, how they're all distinct, and you, but you don't need to arm wrestle over them. They can be distinct on their own and, and yeah. live alongside each other. I think that's just a helpful and healthy perspective that I heard again and again in what he said. I have often used SNHU as a as a kind of a, an example of a institution that that kind of gets it on how to serve multiple audiences. Mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the the parable of the three blind men and the elephant. We may have mm-hmm, talked about mm-hmm, on this podcast mm-hmm. before, but mm-hmm. each one of those students is a different person feeling a different part of the elephant, and it, it's different to each of them. But it's still one elephant. It's that institution, and and Greg was instrumental in in establishing that there mm-hmm. and making it successful. I just, I just, I mean, to me, that's a theme I heard a lot about uh, collaboration and kind of there's room for everybody. Um, 
uh, even the whole <laughs> kind of quick quip toward the end, right, about some some, some institutions, and he, he generously included UCF in that, you know, you pick up the phone and you call, <laughs> you talk. I mean, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's something I value in this community, and I'm happy to do it for others when they call me, and, and I'm sure glad they, they are willing to take my call when I pick up mm -hmm. the phone and ask them questions. I, I've done it, actually, not not that long ago. called a whole bunch of people and, and <laughs> asked some questions about online budget models and organizational structures and other kinds of things because we're as we're thinking about what we want to be when, when we grow up, <laughs> whatever that might be. You know, mm -hmm. speaking of which... Um, one of the things he said that uh, I thought was great was uh, his, his thoughts on leadership and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, not being the smartest person in the room, but right. um, leaders growing other leaders. Yeah. That is, um, that's critical. And I, and I think too often we don't think about that. In, mm -hmm. in, within higher ed, it, too much of the culture is dependent or is, there's an expectation, maybe I should say, that you need to bring somebody in from the outside always. Or if you want to advance mm -hmm. in your career, you're going to have to move or go, and go to another institution. Yeah. I don't think higher ed is as good as industry in succession planning and promoting from within mm -hmm. and developing people. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I think as an institution that, as he said, uh, kind of makes other leaders is one that um, probably is setting itself up for sustainable success in the long term. Yeah. I like that, and then I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't um, call back to TopCast episode 80, uh, the interview that you did with Luke Dowden, Charism in Leading Online Learning Teams, because I think Fowler and Dowden make similar kinds of points about first step is hiring, and then second step is developing, or as, or as Greg Fowler said, trusting them, uh, which I think is, is really an important point. Yeah. Yeah, so I enjoyed it. Um, we did we did sort of say that maybe we'll check in with him after he's had yeah. a chance to be in the seat a little bit longer and and see see what he's learned, what insights he can share. And I would I would welcome the opportunity to do that. Yeah, that's great. You want to try to land the plane so we can get out of here before um, they. I don't know, the cleaning crew kicks us out of the office. <laughs> sure. So framing our institutional missions and the place of online learning within those missions as jobs to be done, Christensen's jobs to mm -hmm. be done, with Greg, which Greg talked about, within mm -hmm. a, an iron triangle, iron triangle, iron triangle type of framework uh, helps us all serve the greater good and create opportunities through education. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, what's in this coffee, Kelvin? <laughs> you want to do that one again? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Okay. As, you, as TopCast listeners will know, you get us in all That's of our awards. <laughs> you just had that, you had that look like, yeah, I want to do that one again. But okay, you know, the I, I like the iron triangle. I think we ought to start using that. <laughs> <laughs> the iron triangle. The iron there triangle. Go. There you That's go. That's it. All right. And on, and on that note, <laughs> until next time, for TopCast, I'm Kelvin. And I'm Tom. See ya.